Thank you, girls. As the deer pants. Have you ever seen a deer pant for water? You have? I've, I've only seen it once in my whole life, and it was actually right out here uh, years ago during hunting season, and dogs were running and running and running this deer all over the place. You could hear them barking, and it turned out to be a, just a little doe, and it stopped right out here just about by the parking lot, literally like this, and just <sighs> tongue hanging out. It's the only time I've ever seen a deer pant. The psalmist says, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul Longs for you, pants for you, thirsts for you. I hope that we have very, very thirsty souls this morning that are ready to be filled by the living water of Christ. We are in Matthew chapter 3, the gospel, and we're listening to Matthew teach us about this great theme, this great happening of the king and his kingdom. The king, of course, Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3 of Matthew, that's when John the Baptist comes on the scene of redemptive history. And he is God's man. He's God's herald sent specifically to prepare people for the coming of this king. And he's been set apart by God his entire life. Set apart. Therefore, uncorrupted from the current religious system and all of the evils that and and corruption that goes on in that and and undefiled by the... uh, By the culture of his day, God kept him separate and you had to go out to him to hear the message from God. So here he is. He's a a hardcore man with a hardcore message that is of repentance, a message of repentance. And though he was set in the wilderness, that's where his pulpit was, if if you will, uh, basically set up. In a ministry atmosphere that's completely contrary to what we might think of as bringing you success out there in the wilderness, not dressed really right for it. Um, He met with great success. His lifestyle of simplicity of just basic needs was a rebuke for the materialism and the, the lust for power, the lust for money of his day. So God's man, John the Baptist, people came out. He was very effective. And one day he is ministering. Uh, He is baptizing people. And he sees a particular group of people also coming to the river to be baptized. And he speaks some very harsh words to this particular group of people. So who are these people? And what are these harsh words that he spoke to them? How does that fit into redemptive history? That's what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to go ahead and just start with verse 5 and read to verse 12 because this is our third time reading this. So you already know the context. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We saw that John's ministry last couple weeks, his ministry was calling people to not rely on their heritage, not rely on their ethnicity, not rely on anything that they think that they can bring to the table, but to throw themselves on the mercy and the grace of God for the forgiveness of sins. That is the way you prepare your heart for this king and the impending kingdom that he brings with him. The problem, as seen in this text, and John even knows what the people are thinking. He knows how they would argue with his challenge for their need of repentance. Says he knows they're going to lean on their heritage. And he says, basically, don't go there. The message stands today. It's a temptation for us to try to ride on people's coattails one way or another. To get places that we want to go. It doesn't work in in the kingdom of God. Uh, You might say, well, you don't understand. Uh, I go to the most popular church in the United States. And my parents are landmark career missionaries. And my BFF is Billy Graham. If that doesn't get me into the kingdom of God, I don't know what will. And John the Baptist would say, that won't get you into the kingdom of God. What gets you into the kingdom of God is repentance From your sins. And I think it's very interesting, even as we sang some of these worship songs and the theme of of humility and and the grace and mercy of Christ, that you come into the kingdom of God repentant, you come into the kingdom of God humble. You can't just say uh, we we can't just start praising the Lord as if there there isn't something between our face and the face of God. That something is a transgression after transgression that's offensive to him. We have to enter into the kingdom of God lowly, humble, so we see our unworthiness to even be there. And that sets the mode for the whole pilgrimage of our walk of faith. It's a beautiful way to enter into the kingdom of God. It's a necessary way and the only way to enter into the kingdom of God. Just to clarify before I go any farther, this baptism of John's is a baptism of preparation. It's not we don't have a baptism of preparation now because the king has already come and he's seated at the right hand of the father. But this was a message. It was a temporary thing for that season of redemptive history where there's a a intertestamental period or a transition period between Old Testament and New Testament. How do you how do you go from one to the other? Uh, They were these people that were getting baptized by by John were good Old Testament saints. They were confessing their sins and they were prepared for the king. When the king comes, then you're in the New Testament and you embrace him into your heart that you have prepared by confession. So it's a it's a preparatory baptism, if you will. And John says, when the king comes, you will be baptized again because this is for preparation. But the next step is baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's what the king will offer you. So many people came out to John. And as the people were coming, he happens to notice one particular group. And, of course, they are the Jewish rulers and they would stand out 
by the way they were dressed, they would stand out, by the way they handled themselves, by the way they lived. And he calls them out. He doesn't exactly give them a very warm welcome. I'm glad you've come. The waters are waiting for you. Uh, That's not exactly what he says. He calls them brood of vipers. The text tells us that they were coming to the baptism. The intention there of the Greek is that they were coming to be baptized. That's not just out of curiosity, but they were going to be a part of what was going on. Uh, Don't know exactly what their motives were, but we can be pretty well assured by John's response to them that their motives for being there were not the proper motives. They weren't there over the brokenness of their sin. They hadn't seen the light. They were there for other reasons. I would surmise they were there because they were uh, Jewish leaders. Um, They wanted to try to maintain a little bit of control over the people. I mean, you've got this prophet, this man of God. All the people are going out to him. They respect him. They see him as as a true man of God. And so for the leaders to not, they, they can't go against John. That would be a bad move because it would pit them against what God was doing. So I'm just thinking that they came out and said, we're just going to be a part of this thing, whatever it is, so we can maintain our uh, control over the people and be one of the guys, so to speak. But whatever the case, in verse 7, John points them out. He speaks to them. You brood of vipers. Now, we have a. We like to welcome our guests, people we haven't seen for a while, or our new first-time comers. Uh, wouldn't it be something if we said, well, raise your hand if this is your first time here, and there's a few people that raise your hand, and then Sam would stand up here and say, you brood of vipers. Who told you about this place? What are you even doing here? How do you even know to come to this place? Uh, that wouldn't be very welcoming, would it? Well, that's what John says to these people. Who are they? Well, they are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two different groups of people, though they are both Jewish leaders. We know a little bit about the Pharisees. They are the fundamentalists of the day. They are uh, the literalists, or I say the legalists of the day. They take uh, God and Scripture very, very serious. Um, They are what we might call today as the holier than thou's. They had an attitude of superiority because they were very disciplined, purposed to be very self-controlled, to try to obey the law to a to a T. And they were quite successful at this righteousness that they had practiced. Um, And they kind of knew it and they had an attitude of uh, spiritual superiority to the extent where they began to separate themselves from others. And sometimes we see that happen today. Uh, People that begin to think, well, I've accomplished more in my disciplines than most others. And then they kind of birds of a feather flock together and maybe they form some kind of spiritual group and inevitably inevitably begin to look down on others. Uh, So much so That they begin to not even associate with them. I don't want to associate with you because I'm here and you're there and you might drag me down. You might defile me in some kind of way. 
And so essentially what the Pharisees became was isolationists. They didn't really intermingle with people, even at the expense of ministry. The, the attitude wasn't, you need God in your life. You're downtrodden. You're, you're, you're living in sin. The attitude was, you're living in sin. You're an adulterer. You're a tax collector. Be gone. We don't want anything to do with you. Now, these were the people when they went into the marketplace, would come home and ceremonially wash themselves, lest they bumped into something or someone that was defiled. For them, it was clear-cut who were the sinners and who were not. They were devoted to the point where they, uh, they were so devoted to God that they really didn't minister to people that needed to be ministered to. I can't say that we can take God too seriously. I mean, God needs to be taken very seriously and he's he's worthy of every thought. But I think we can take ourselves too seriously sometimes and we can take our achievement or our righteousness too seriously. And when we do that, we we begin to alienate ourselves and we begin to actually die on the inside. Because what happens is we set for ourselves a standard of holiness or righteousness that's better than the average Christian, the average bear. But then we can't really keep it. So we have to pretend and be and we become phony. That's what had happened to the to the Pharisees. They they had this standard of living that was so high they couldn't even keep it. But it, was, it became all about keeping up with appearances. And that was the part of the major corruption of the religious system of the day. You can imagine they were in the wrong place at the right time because you have this guy, John the Baptist, who is nothing about keeping up with appearances. He shuns these kind of things and the expectations of how you should act, how you should dress, what you should eat, how you should be religious. So they alienated, alienated themselves. So much so, and we'll see this coming in Matthew. They were so righteous that when Jesus comes into their presence, they cross him off their list of friends because he hangs with sinners. He ministers to sinners. He comes and he wants to bring God's love to the hurting people and those that are in bondage. He gets it. He understands. He has he's that high priest with that compassion, that sympathy. And they cross him off their list of friends. He becomes their enemy because he associates with sinners. That's how dead they were inside, though they probably looked like the elite spiritual elite. To the human eye. The Sadducees, on the other hand, um, they were the liberals of the day. They were the compromisers. Uh, yeah, they, um, they were more about, not so much about righteous living, but more about getting what you can when you can. They were more materialistic, more about power and wealth in a different way, more about serving themselves. Then God, they were the ones that would broker the deals with Rome so they could get the power and they could put money in their banks. That was okay with them. They, uh, 
They didn't believe in the resurrection, so there's no consequences to the way you live if you just die and that's it. And the only consequences you face is in this life. That changes the way you do life. And it changed the way they did life, and so they didn't mind compromising. They didn't mind trying to, to, um, to gain, whether it was good way or an evil way. How is this kind of attitude played out in real life? Well, these were the guys that sent, set the, the uh, temple worship into a business. That's how they viewed it. Always willing to make a buck. And so they know when you come to the temple, according to God's word, you have to worship him in a certain way and you have to offer certain sacrifices. So there's birds there, there's animals and so forth. And so they will supply those for you for a price. As most of you are pilgrims coming from far away, you don't always bring your own sacrifice, but you want to worship God. So they will gladly sell you a sacrifice. But in order to buy that sacrifice, first you have to come over here because you're a foreigner and you have to exchange your money. So you have the temple chain, the, the, um, the money changers in the temple. They've got this little kiosk set up over here, over by the sacrifice, sacrificial animal kiosk. And so they will gladly exchange the money. Of course, they rip you off in the exchange from your foreign money to the Jewish currency of the day. So they turn the whole religious practice and faith into a business, into a way to take advantage of people, into a way to get money. And so now you know why Jesus was a little upset when he walks into the temple. It's supposed to be uh, people who are focused on God and who have left the ways of the world behind. And it has become about as worldly as you can get it. That's the Sadducees. They didn't mind doing that, didn't have a conscience about it. At all. They were wealthy, politically powerful, very influential. They weren't as well loved by the people, by the Pharisees. At least the Pharisees looked righteous to Sadducees. They just were traitors. They worked with Rome. So these two groups, though they both ruled Israel, they didn't really get along together because they didn't have a whole lot in agreement. So, for instance, they didn't agree. They didn't agree theologically. The Pharisees were the ones who believed in the resurrection and they believed in angels. They believed in a spiritual world and they were working really hard for that future reward. That's why they were being so strict. We might not get it in this world, but we're going to get it in the next. The Sadducees are like there is no next. So just get it while you can. They didn't agree theologically. They didn't agree uh, on Scripture, the Sadducees were like the first five books, the Pentateuch. What what was the uh, what was that little saying um, about the Pentateuch? We want the Pentateuch. How about you? Yes, we do. We want the Pentateuch. How about you? That was the Sadducees. They only believed in the first five books. That's as far as they would take it. Now the Pharisees believed in the, all the Old Testament and oral tradition. As having equal value, the tradition of the fathers having equal value with Scripture. Uh, they didn't agree on the sovereignty of God and man's free will. The Sadducees were all about free will. The Pharisees were like, no, it's both. God's sovereignty and man's free will come into act. But one thing that they both agreed on were works. They agreed that what you were to get in this world, you had to put forth great personal efforts. The Pharisees tried to gain their righteousness by their tremendous amount of self-control and discipline. 
The Sadducees tried to gain their wealth and their power by their own manipulations or their own wisdom or their own hard work, whatever it took. But they were both in agreement that you work for what you get in that world. So uh, they were about self-effort. And a lot of this, of course, became external. It became about your actions. Your heart didn't so much matter. Your motives didn't matter. And so this is completely contrary to John the Baptist's ministry. So here they are with their external phoniness. And here's John the Baptist who is all about being real and all about getting to the root heart of the issue. And so you understand why they didn't get such a warm welcome because they stand for exactly the opposite of what John the Baptist's ministry is trying to accomplish. He confronts them. As Jesus will later when he tell, he calls them whitewashed walls or sepulchers. You look great, new, fresh coat of paint on the outside, guys. But on the inside, you are spiritually dead. And that outside paint is not going to get you into the kingdom of God. God is not impressed with that at all. Because God looks at the heart. And he, we're dealing with people that are very, very meticulous to try to obey the law. And Jesus will later say in Matthew... You tithe your mint, your cumin. You, you count seeds. Can you imagine counting seeds as your tithe for church? They count seeds so as to not go one over or one under. That's how meticulous they are. But then he says in the weightier matters of the law, you don't even care about justice. You don't care about mercy. You don't care about love. Because you're so busy counting your seeds in your worship to the Lord. So they don't have a lot of in common except for works. And there's something else that we're going to see that they come together. And they are in perfect agreement. As the gospel develops, they are in perfect agreement that they hate Jesus. That's the one thing in addition to the works that they agree, that they agree on. So there's John the Baptist. He calls it like he sees it. Brood of vipers. What is that? Well, viper snake. And they're the brood of the vipers. They're the offspring uh, from mama and papa snake. And so they are snakelets. That's the proper term. I looked it up. Because I said, okay, you have puppies, you have kittens. What are you as a baby snake? And, of course, there's scientific terminology for it. But in essence, they are the snakelets. He's saying you get it true. You little snakes, you get it true. The phoniness, the, the hypocritical actions, it all comes from your parents. It's been passed down to you. You you fell for it. You modeled it as well. And so he calls them snakelets. Not very politically correct, is it? Now, that could lose you a campaign in this day and age, calling somebody with those words. Viper. What comes to mind when he uses this word viper? Everybody would, would picture something when he called them that. And that is there were vipers in that culture and they were little, basically like desert snakes. Uh, and they kind of were still, I guess you'd say they played dead. So you didn't even know that they were close and they were brown and they fit right into the desert atmosphere. But they were poisonous. 
You might mistake them for a stick or a branch and walk too closely. Or you might even try to grab them as if they're a piece of kindling to start your fire. And then you get struck. You remember in Acts that happened to the Apostle Paul when he was stranded on the island. He's collecting firewood and he gets bit by a poisonous snake. That's the viper. Um, and he lived through that. And they were all amazed. So John is uh, calling them vipers. They are poisonous. They are uh, dangerous. They're deceptive. They act like one thing, but they're really out to get you. And the idea is that you, they're the leaders and they're, lead, they're poisoning the people's minds with works, righteousness. They're causing deaths. They're leading people's hearts to, to the desert instead of to the oasis. Poisoning Israel. Phonies. And then he says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? I think that's another little dig from John because the, the idea is, how do you even know to be here? Because I know it's not on your own because you don't have any spiritual sensitivities. You're so dead. You're so alienated from God and into yourself that you wouldn't know or have an inkling to think, I need to repent to get right with God. So who told you? Who clued you into what was going on out here? Somebody must have done it or you're here for other reasons. But what John does make clear is the reality of God's wrath. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And the idea behind that, as connected with vipers or snakes, is that just like a farmer might be, uh, burn a field today, in that time, and of course deserts are dry and any kind of vegetation gets dried out, uh, picture those of you with a little age, picture the tumbleweeds blowing down the center of town in the westerns, in the deserts. Uh, these are, it's a dry place and the vegetation can easily be ignited and sometimes fires would break out in the desert. And they would, they would um, wash across the desert and all the little desert creatures would try to stay in front of the flames. And that was the wrath. And so he is painting a picture of these little snakelets, these vipers, trying to get away from the wrath. And in essence, he's saying, you're not going to do it. You're not prepared for the fire that's going to come. You can't outrun it because you're depending on your own righteousness and you're depending on your godly heritage, your father Abraham. And that's not what prepares you for the kingdom. The only thing that prepares you for the kingdom is repentance. It's acknowledging that you have offended a holy God and humbling yourself to that end. So who brought you out of your holes to even know that you need to be here? Your righteousness is false. You will not survive the wrath to come. Quite a message. Hardcore man with a hardcore message. And then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Very powerful little statement right there. So if you want to survive the wrath, the fire of God, this is what's necessary. It's a repentance, not just any kind of repentance, but a repentance that actually bears fruit. What's he talking about? Well, it's nothing new. It's the transformed life. 
It's, it's a, we understand repentance is when you do a 180. That's what the word means. It's a change of direction. Your mind, your thoughts have changed the way you think and what you think about your emotions have changed. You, you, you now you are excited and joyful about uh, new things and you're grieved over the things that used to excite you. You've changed that and your will has changed. You're headed in an entirely different direction. That's repentance. And when you trans when you're transformed like this, when you have seen the error of your ways and you've cast yourself on the mercy and the grace of God. And that's the life you're going to live. It's going to transform you. It's going to change the way you live. There is, in other words, there's a fruit, a predictable fruit that grows out of a life that trusts in the grace of God for all things. And if. If you want to be saved from the wrath to come, that's the kind of repentance that you need. So it rules out any kind of false repentance where we we boohoo and we cry and we act like we're really broken over our, our offense to God. But then we never change. This is something that literally transforms your life. And it's what scripture calls true repentance. We're familiar with knowing that faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But did you know repentance is a gift of God? Second Timothy 2, 25, the Apostle Paul talking to people, he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance. That word for grant is gift them, give them repentance. It's something that God can give and permit so scripture tells us that the way we know true repentance is by the fruit that it bears. Now, these are people that have lived their lives and fashioned their lives over phoniness. And now John is saying you need truth. And the change that takes place comes from the inside. It comes from the heart and because your heart's changed. Your actions will change. Your attitude will change. Your thoughts will change. In other words, what happens is your life begins to take the form of the truths that you're living by. The truths that you have embraced. And, of course, these truths were also personified in the person of Christ. So our lives begin to take the form or conform to the image of Christ. And the way we handle situations. That is a fruit that keeps with repentance. Paul said the same thing in Acts 26, 20. And also to, also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. So it's a repentance. A true repentance never quits. It just bears fruit. Bears more and more fruit. Not that we're perfect, but it's taking our lives are taking the shape of the picture that Scripture paints for us through the deeds and the works. And that's what we're bringing into the or that's what we're producing or bringing to the kingdom that we have stepped into. In Matthew, John doesn't give examples. You say, well, what might that look like for me? He doesn't give examples. But in Luke, same um, story, same context. Luke gives us more information, more words of what actually 
happened when John said these words in Luke chapter 3. I'll read it for you, 10 through 14. So John has talked to them about repentance. He's confronted the uh, religious rulers. And the crowds hear all this. And they say, what do we do? And he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So other people there, their wheels are turning. Well, what, what would it look like for me? And so the tax collector said, what do I have to do, John? He said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. So then the soldiers chime in and say, well, John, I'm a soldier. What would repentance look like for me? What kind of fruit would come out of my transformation? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Can you believe I just said that? Being content with your wages is a fruit to the kingdom of God. And we thought we were safe because we weren't soldiers or tax collectors or just the crowd. You see how a kingdom mindset comes over us and we begin to look at all things with different eyes. The examples that John gave to these three different groups of people all have to do with possessions. Isn't that interesting? Possessions. And he's saying just to the generic crowd, you you have food, share it. If you have extra clothes, be aware of those who don't. So break out of the mindset of hoarding. Break out of the mindset of it's just all about me and I'm going to take care of myself. That's not kingdom thinking. Boy, do we get a lot of that, a dose of that in our culture. We are fed that constantly. Look out for yourself. Take care of yourself. That's good stewardship. And the, the new principles of the kingdom that we need, to, we need to be set free from that kind of thinking, Jesus will tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, that's bondage. I want to set you free. Share. Now, how can you be willing to share when you really need this stuff to live? It's called trusting in the all-sufficient God. How we trust in the all-sufficient God to provide all our needs reveals itself in what we do with our possessions. So to the crowd, he says, give. Now, to the other two groups, the soldiers and the tax collectors, he says, stop taking He doesn't say give. He says, stop taking what's not yours to have. Don't use your position to extort people or to get more money, to get bribes. If you're a soldier and you have weapons, you can't you can't um, bully people into giving you things. It's not yours. It's not right. That's not kingdom thinking. So think about your occupation, whether it's a housewife, whether it's a student, you know, high school, elementary school, college. Uh, whether it's some kind of professional, what are the temptations that are brought into your profession? Those are the worldly things that we will speak to us directly because that's what John does. And we want to not do those things. So like with when I used to do contracting, um, you, you could talk to somebody and get an idea for what they knew about construction. And if you get somebody that has no clue about construction and they're very happen to be very trusting and naive, you could charge them a little more money and they'd never know the difference because they don't know construction. Mechanics the same way. Oh, you need a new you need a new uh, air converter for your tires. Your air converters 
bad and it's going to be six extra six hundred dollars. You don't know anything about mechanics. And you think your air converters that way you need a special kind of gas and air in a tire. Some cars. Um, inside joke. Anyway, what are the temptations? What are what is the world trying to conform you to in your occupation? Government contracts. The government can t- can be taken advantage of. People are very wealthy today because they have taken advantage of the government and the government didn't mind it so much. As long as they don't get caught. Then they mind it and then you take the fall for it. There's all these things that we're, we, we are confronted with every day. And we want to weigh those. Is that kingdom thinking? Is taking, is hoarding, is a lack of sharing, is, is our entitlements. What are we trying to accomplish under the reign and rule of this king. It's a huge challenge. And the idea is that if we have repented. And now we love God. And we've placed our faith in God. And we're going to trust in him. We actually can be content with where we are today. Even with our salaries. Now who doesn't want more? But we can be content with our salaries. Why? Because we're understanding God's in control. He knows who our boss is, he knows the rankings and so forth, he knows our needs, and actually he can take care of that for us. And so then we're not threatened where we feel like, well, I gotta take from this person, or I gotta fudge a little bit, I gotta compromise, otherwise, how am I gonna take care of myself? In other words, I gotta break kingdom principles in order to take care of myself, which is a lie from the enemy, because the kingdom principle is God takes care of us when we trust Him. Then our eyes are opened to God's all-sufficient provision. A repentant heart loves mercy, loves justice, loves to share, loves unity, loves to support, to care for, and comfort. Because it's received all of that from God. That is a heart that keeps with the fruit of repentance. It's a faith that works. James might call it being challenged with repentance is not what we always want to hear, but it is part of the good news back in Luke chapter three says in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. See, the good news that he was preaching included the exhortation to repent. It included being unpolitically. Or not politically correct. Exhortation. To be exhorted to live in a certain way is good news. So how can that be? John Piper, to quote him, he says, If we are saved by relying solely on God's mercy, why is it such good news to be told things that we have to do? Two reasons. One is that since there's a kind of fruit that testifies to the health of a tree... We can reassure ourselves that we're born again tree, a born again tree by whether we are following these exhortations. That is bearing good fruit, as it says in John 2, 3. And by this, we may be sure that we may know him if we keep his commandments. So the exhortations of Scripture are good news because they help us know if we are born of God. If we fail to meet the test of self-examination, they send us flying back to the mercy of God and looking for the grace of God and the forgiveness that we need and the help that we need. 
So to be told things that we don't want to hear is a part of the good news. A good question to ask ourselves is, in light of this passage, am I born again? Have I truly repented? Have I given my heart, my mind, and my soul to God? Have I made that decision and placed myself at the good graces and the mercy of God alone, in Christ alone? Is that what I am trusting in, in my life? Have I truly renounced the ways of the world in favor of the King and His kingdom? Refusing to continue to drink the muddied water of the world and drink from the fountain of life. The spring of Christ. It's a good question to be challenged with. A good exhortation. Another reason it's good, John Piper says, another reason exhortations are good news is that the way of obedience is the way of joy. There is more lasting joy in doing what God says, no matter how hard it is, than all the ways of sin. You see, that's the truth. And we have to keep telling ourselves that, preaching the gospel to ourselves. This looks right, and I know it feels good. I've sinned in this way before. But in the end of the day, what I really need, and I know what's best for me, and brings glory to God, is disobedience, and so I'm going to do it because I know the truth and I'm trusting God in that. That is something that we need to remind ourselves. So exhortations are a part of the gospel because they point us along the way of the greatest fulfillment and joy in this life and the next. Help, faith helps us to see this, that there is no greater joy. Repentance is a hard thing. There's no greater joy in it. Bearing fruit means saying no to the flesh, but there's no greater joy in it. That's one of the truths or the principles of the kingdom of God. And another part as I close about the good news is not just the exhortations, but it's the warning of judgment. You don't even have good news without a warning of judgment. Why? The good news is about salvation. But salvation from what? Why do we even need deliverance? Because we're sinners, because we've offended the holy God. The good news is that you don't have to burn in the fire and face eternal damnation if you repent and put your faith in Christ. That's the good news. So part, judgment is a part of the good news. And people need to be warned. And, and we're, we're so cautious these days about not hurting people's feelings. But I don't think you would mind if I woke you up from a dead sleep or slumber and said, look, your house is on fire, but there's still time for you to escape. Are you going to get mad at me that I woke you up? That you had an opportunity at least to be saved from the flames? It's a loving thing to do. It's a caring thing to do. And so part of the good news, the message of God is to warn us. Here's the way life works. You have the way, the truth, and the life, and then you have the way of the world and the flesh and your own sinful desires. That leads to eternal condemnation. Christ leads to eternal life and joy and a whole new kingdom of restoration. It's your choice to make. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's where John the Baptist, that's what he's saying. That's his message. It's your decision to make. The wrath is here. The kingdom is at hand. Which will you Choose. And so God is calling a people to himself. 
He's calling his people. He's setting up his kingdom. He's establishing it and it's going to operate according to the principles of the king. So the two questions we want to ask ourselves is, are we prepared? Are we prepared to meet the king? And are we keeping our fruit and keeping in repentance before almighty God? May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.